You are listening to Revolver Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. I'm film critic Gary Kogel, and today I look at two new films often running in local theaters. The remake of the 1959 Charlton Heston classic, Ben-Hur. Also, one of the best films I think we've both seen so far this year, Hell or High Water, starring Oscar winner Jeff Bridges. He plays an aging Texas Ranger looking for a couple of bank robbers. And I'm wine expert Haley Hamilton Cogill. We've got two big films this week, and what goes better with big films than big wines? We're talking wines from Rutherford and Galilee today. Wow, I know a lot about Rutherford. I know very little about Galilee. By the way, a lot of wine stuff and stuff happened. In, uh, in biblical in history. In biblical times and history around Galilee. So Ben-Hur is this 2016 remake of, and by the way, the, the original 1959 film with Charlton Heston is three, three and a half hours long. We all worked forever for three hours just to get to the chariot race. It's based on an 1880s novel by a guy named Wallace who wrote um, uh, Ben-Hur, uh, The Story of the Christ. Mm-hmm. And he wrote it after Civil War times in order to try to find some healing between battles that Interesting. He, he had been through and his family had been through. Yeah. And reconciliation and healing and forgiveness. And he picked this – there's a name. There, the name Ben-Hur actually occurs, I think, uh, in text in First Kings in the Old Testament. But that's it. It's mm-hmm. just the name Ben-Hur. And then he fictionalized an entire story about the time of Christ. So he borrowed the name. And I always thought growing up watching Ben-Hur that – Ooh, was he like around when Jesus was crucified? Yeah. And was all was any of this big biblically accurate? And the answer is no. It's all it's all fictional. Huh. And there was a film, there was a silent film, I want to say in the twenties, uh, where they did the chariot race. And it was it was a big hit back then. But the nineteen fifty nine film with Charlton Heston, eleven Oscar nominations. Wow. Charlton Heston won Best Actor. Wow. For that film. It won Best Picture, Best Director. I think it's a William Wyler film. And so it has it has a, a steep history in a lot of film people. I mean, you you when you talk about those old movies, King of Kings around Easter time, mm-hmm. Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments, sure, Ben Hur, really one of the best, and and um, much revered over the years by a lot of people. Now you watch it, kind now, of one of the classic epics. Yes, but it's also kind of corny, kind of cheesy, <laughs> cheesy until you get to the the chariot race, when the chariot race, or when they're in the ship. Now, they do this remake in, in 2016, and it's kind of like a Cliff Notes version of the original, and they've changed some of it. The, I don't think in the original they were brothers. I don't think Masala and Judah Ben-Hur were brothers in the original. Mm-hmm. They had a relationship, but they weren't brothers. And so they, they, Well, and they're, they're like adopted brothers. Masala's adopted by the family. Masala, right, Masala, it's a Jewish Masala, family who ado- right, adopts right, a Roman right. kid. You know, and Of course, he grows up guilty and wants to go prove himself and— and all that kind of stuff. So in this new one, he runs off and becomes a Roman soldier. And uh, the Jewish family is actually, Judah Ben-Hur and his family are all living kind of a real cushy life. <laughs> They're all lounging a lot. They're lounging a lot. They eat well. People around them are starving. It's getting really bad. They just want to keep the lifestyle that they have <laughs> until they just finally have to wake up and realize that they can't. Yeah. And, of course, I think one of the best scenes in this new Ben-Hur is, is when the, the Romans all march in. But then there's all these little weird things that happen, like, couldn't they hear them? There's it's there's so, 20,000 Romans walking through your neighborhood. Can't you hear can't them? Can't you hear what's going Stop on? Stop lounging and yeah. look out the window. And then they all just kind of go to the balconies and, and look out and are so surprised yes. to see all these Romans. That Wouldn't, wouldn't his buddy Masala have told Judah Ben-Hur, hey, today's the day. Yeah. We're coming to town. Somebody would have said 
said something like there's 20,000 Romans marching. They would have known that for weeks. You would have thought. You would have thought. So here's, I'm just going to make a couple blanket statements. Watching this film, I thought it was half of a movie. I really liked half of it, and I really disliked half of it. And the more I think about this remake of Ben-Hur, the worse it gets. I'm, I'm not, I don't think it's remarkable, and I don't think it's going to change any plans. I kept thinking, why remake Ben-Hur? Well, they're remaking, they're remaking The Magnificent Seven. They remade True Grit, mm-hmm. but remaking Ben-Hur, and of course it, it explores the life of Jesus just a little bit more, and who plays Jesus in the film? It's a, I love figuring out who people are, and I, know. And, and I don't know. Rodrigo actually, Santoro. Okay, so Rodrigo Santoro, I love figuring out who people are, yeah. is the handsome man that Laura Linney is in love with, Carl and love actually that she does the little dance in the hallway because she gets to kiss she runs up on the steps (laughs) brings the guy home runs up on the steps wiggles a little little dance i love figuring out who people are okay and and also uh jack houston which is the grandson of the great uh former direct the great late director john houston Houston, angelica houston's angelica houston's nephew uh uh is all he's due to ben hurt morgan freeman with dreadlocks Actually adds a little spark to this film when, when they finally get to Morgan Freeman about halfway through. And then the girl, uh, Naz, Nazanin Boniadi, um, we've seen her before. She was in home, she um, played one of the agents in Homeland. That um, And I remember, she was in Homeland, but I remember her in that documentary Going Clear about Scientology. Because she was one of the girls, that, according to the doc. That Tom Cruise was, was being... Groomed for. <laughs> groomed one of many girls, but she was the front runner, I guess, according to the documentary going clear on Scientology. And she I think she's now left Yes. Left that. I think she got out fast. Groom, I don't know how to be groomed for Tom Cruise. I don't know how all that works. I think it's a I think this movie also is in three D and it has no business being in three D. It it was almost I, I think I looked at you about ten minutes in saying, Why is this film in three D? So they then, can charge more on but the ticket. Then I have to wear bad glasses that were completely not not yes. very well maintained. Yes. And and there's nothing nothing's flying at you. I understand some films in 3D because you really do see the effects. I think we saw Pete's Dragon in 3D and yes. and and was Jungle Book in 3D? Uh I we I don't think we saw it in 3D. Okay. I I it's but there are films that it makes sense and and you see this kind of you you want to have that experience. Mm-hmm. There was nothing flying at you in this except maybe some sand in the chariot race. It it was just odd. It was very it, odd. It's very very odd and they do that some marketing thing because they can charge 6 to 10 dollars more a ticket. Well, it's, it's a 100 crazy. million dollar film. Don't go see it in 3D. I'm not sure 20 something. You know if the average uh, audience for a movie is 14 to 24 year old male I'm, I'm not sure they're interested in biblical sandal movies I, I just i'm not quite sure we're gonna find out because it, it's it's coming out soon it's a big film all right so we're, we're talking ben-hur we're talking biblical times we're talking a little inspiration at the end that's a little heavy-handed and corny it's a director from russia he did night watch but he did wanted with angelina jolie and i think that's the best film he's ever made i don't think this fits into his other really good films but if i'm going to talk wine about ben-hur yes if you're going to talk one, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm fascinated by how you're going to do this. So, um, kind of in going into this, because I don't remember the Charlton Heston film. I think I probably saw it, you know, in the 80s or 90s at some point. But I, it wasn't something that I grew up watching, like Ten Commandments every Easter. Right. Um, so, I didn't know if I was going to find an Italian wine, but it seems much more appropriate for a film that's based in and around Jerusalem 
to talk about a great Israeli wine. Okay. And, and though fictional, the film certainly has many references to Jesus. And so this region of Galilee where Jesus spent, and, and if you read your, your biblical history, much of his life performed many of his miracles. Um, most kind of probably the biggest one is when he walked on water. Um, hey, it's where he, the by the Sea of Galilee is where he cooked breakfast after the resurrection for mm-hmm. his seven disciples. Um, and this region of Galilee is actually becoming really, really well known for producing high quality wines. It's one of, it's one of the oldest wine regions in the world, obviously. Um, but also one of the fastest growing because it's kind of this perfect area of of the the terroir is perfect there and basically that means that you have this perfect combination of of the soils which are highly volcanic so that's really really interesting minerality in in the soils you have high elevations so you have um, both hot days as well as cool nights that will um that the fruit will get nice and ripe, but you'll also have great acidity and great freshness because the cool nights actually keep the the fruit nice and and fresh and and maintains that that kind of structure that you look for. Um, there's a great slope in the land. There's great sunshine. All of the elements that kind of go into what they call this terroir, and it produces really really great wines, mainly from the the kind of international varieties are, are what's growing there. So lots of Cabernet, Merlot, Syrah. There's one winery in particular. It's called Golan Heights. It's kind of um, the region's become known. Golan Heights region is, is um, Israel's wine country. And the Yarden wines from Golan Heights are, are probably some of the most well-known as well as well-exported. So you can find them pretty easily. Yarden, Y-A-R-D-E-N? Yes. Okay. Um, there's Syrah, there Cabs, there Merlots. There's the, when you can get into the actual single vineyard Yarden wines, there's a Syrah that's the Abedal Slope vineyard that sits between 1,300 feet and 3,900 feet above um, elevation above sea level. So this is really high elevation fruit, which again is going to allow you to have that great um, structure in the wines. And I love a Syrah in particular that that really has this kind of meaty characteristic. So it's almost like this bacony smoked meat along with lots of, of herbal notes, some really, really nice um, kind of dried fruit and ripe fruit, lots of cherry, lots of blackberry, lots of plum, um, lots of structure, really, really interesting. Big wines, mm-hmm. nice and full-bodied, but... but so I'm thinking back when Jesus turned water into wine, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what vintage and whether it was barrel <sighs> age, but, but I, bet <laughs> it, I bet it was great. I'm going to say it's probably not barrel aged. They, they stored everything just in big clay pots. They did. Yes. <laughs> they didn't use French <laughs> they oak They didn't back. have French oak by then. <laughs> Hey, when we come back on Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing, a movie that thrilled both of us, starring Jeff Bridges as the Texas Ranger and Chris Pine as the bank robber. Wasn't he in Star Trek? After talking about Ben-Hur, why not talk about hell or high water? We will be right back. And we're back on Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. And can I just say, right now, 
If you can find it locally, run to the theater to see this film called Hell or High Water. Don't be put off by the title. It's a, I, I think it's a borderline great film. It's it really it's really. How's that the distribution? Good. Is it well distributed? So it started. I think it started in thirty two theaters okay. last week. It goes this week to four hundred. Awesome. And then I think it'll do really well. Last week it was the highest per screen average of any movie. Great. I think it did eighteen thousand per theater. Yeah. Where some of these others are in, you know, they're in three thousand theaters, but these were only in thirty two. But they're they're snowballing it. They're trying to add some momentum and probably get some Oscar consideration. It's great for it to a uh, which I. I think it actually deserves. It's directed by a guy named David McKenzie. I know nothing about. He's done some films I've never seen. But it's written by Taylor Sheridan, who wrote Sicario. And Sicario is— loved, I yeah. loved Sicario. And Sicario is a very difficult R-rated film. It takes place on the Mexico-Texas border. So Sheridan's writing a trilogy, and he's done two now. He wrote Sicario, and he wrote Hell or High Water, which is all about Texas. Mm-hmm. And he's got a third one coming out in 2017 that he's going to direct. So he'll direct the third one, wrote the first two. And I think Sicario and Hell or High Water are two of the best screenplays of the last couple of years, at least. So this this takes place with, uh, it's what is it, West Texas. Mm-hmm. It's modern day times. It looks a little like No Country for Old Men. Yeah, it's has like that kind de- of feel to it. It's depressed West Texas. It is. It's, it's almost like it, it might have been a handful of years ago when everybody was trying to figure out if if gas was still going to, you know, if we could still find oil anywhere and and the recession's on and there I thought one of the most interesting things just in the the shooting of the film there they kept passing signs that said you know like like bankruptcy help and 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 if you need a loan if you need somebody to help you get out of your your financial mess it so it almost looked like it was like deep recession deep, days of, yeah. of West Texas. Yeah, and it's really accurate. I mean, we live in Texas. We're not in West Texas a lot, but we know what it looks like, and it's so accurate. Mm-hmm. I think everything about this film is accurate. And it's got Chris Pine and Ben Foster as bank robbers, and they kind of are. They're robbing banks for a reason, and I'm not going to give it away. I don't want to give it away, but they have a reason, and the reason. Makes is, a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense to them. I still think they're massive criminals and they're doing bad things. But Jeff Bridges is the the Oscar winner. Jeff Bridges from Crazy Heart is the is the Texas Ranger sent to find them, and he's kind of like Tommy Lee Jones <laughs> in No Country for <laughs> Old Men. He's retiring soon. Yep. He's got stuff going on. He's kind of working one last case. And he kind of shares his speech a lot. It's hard to understand him at first, but then it's you just, just get into it. <laughs> and then you realize he everything he says and does, this is a movie of economy. These don't these people don't sit and gab for any reason. They're not you know, as you find in West Texas. People don't have a lot to say, but when they say it, they mean it. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to find out why they're robbing banks and who they are because it's getting dangerous. And he wants to catch them because they're not robbing one bank or two. They're they're doing multiple banks. And I I find everything I find everything about this almost epic. You know, Ben-Hur's an epic. This is a small little intimate film that feels more epic than Mm Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur was trying to be intimate and not intimate. Yeah, uh, it's trying to be more about who Jesus is and who Judah Ben-Hur is. Right. But failed at that. This is an economy of words, but yet says everything. I think what I'm trying to say, Haley, is it's all about subtlety. Mm -hmm. 
And there's no subtlety in Ben-Hur, and this is a movie of complete subtlety. And every, just like you said, there's a sign. Mm-hmm. If you miss the sign, you're kind of missing the point of what's going on. Right, right. And it's everywhere if you just pay attention as an audience member. And I think Chris Pine is the best thing I've ever seen. Yeah, he did great. He's and Ben Foster's great. Ben Foster's great in this film. They're both, they, and they both make sense. They're brothers and they're complete opposites. Mm-hmm. And, and they both have a reason for doing this. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reveal in the film. And then Jeff Bridges. It's, there's one scene, and I, I don't want to give it away, but it's a very stressful scene for Jeff Bridges and a rifle. And when that scene happens, my heart just aches for him. I get it. I understand his character. It has resonance. It's everything that's great about movies. I think it's one of the best films since No Country for Old Men and easily since No Country for Old Men for me made in Texas. But here's the key. It was shot in Clovis, New Mexico. (laughs) They make a film about Texas and they shoot it in New Mexico. See, they're good incentives in in New Mexico, right? They they, they got a lot more (laughs) money back. So that's how that works. So I... I don't know. I, I, to, to me, the best two films I think I've seen all year are easy. It's The Jungle Book and Hell or, Hell or High Water. Yeah, I thought story-wise, this, this is it makes you think. And I, I like what you said about it's an economy of words because when somebody says something, you have to pay attention to it. Right. And it has really great waitresses. <laughs> well, that's the— It and, has like two or three, I think two that I remember. Yeah. You kind of have to wonder memorable. if, if the, some, of the, some of the additional cast members, were they locals that they found? So, you know, they had some, some, some folks in a diner that it's like, God, it kind of reminded me yeah. of Bernie. It's like, are these people really part of this little town? Bernie's the other accurate film, but that's about East Texas. Right. Or this is about West Texas where there's dust blowing everywhere and it's kind of dirty and nobody has a job and the sheriff's just trying to get one last bad guy. Yeah. yeah. So I'm thinking wine <laughs> in well, West it, Texas. It, yes, this film made me very thirsty, sun-drenched, very dusty West Texas. Yeah. Um, I will say there's good, there's very good product placement in this film and as the best thirst quencher for many Texas cowboys – um, I think at one point I heard I heard somebody say you don't get drunk off beer, which I I know a cowboy down in San Antonio that that <laughs> that um, that same philosophy has not been true for me. Th- that's good because we don't. <laughs> there's some very strong beers, but so Shinerbach and and Lone Star I think made some some great uh, appearances in this film. Um, love many Texas wines. Pedernales is, is yeah. one that, um, you know, kind of that High Plains fruit. Dukeman also does some great High Plains fruit, which is out in, in West Texas near Lubbock. But when I think of dust, my mind and palate go to Rutherford and Napa Valley. So between Oakville and St. Helena, the Rutherford bench um, has kind of become celebrated for what they call this Rutherford dust. And it was a phrase coined by Andre Telechev, who was the famed uh, winemaker for over 25 years for BV, that that kind of celebrated that there is this earthiness and this dense structure and concentration within this tiny little piece of Napa Valley that that creates a flavor that you don't really find anywhere else and and it's and it really is this dusty earthiness that that when you taste it it's 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 so unique that you know exactly where where this wine comes from and there have been great 
Rutherford wines over the years. Staglin, Camus, wow. Scarecrow, wow. Hall, BV, Quintessa, um, Raymond. But I'm going to say, and, and this is also a little, a little piece of me and why I'm, I'm such a wine lover, is that one of the most historic and iconic was in Inglenook and Gustav Niebaum's vineyard that Gustav Niebaum, who was a former uh, Alaskan fisherman that turned vintner. Like him already. And, uh, and moved to Napa Valley in the 1850s, I believe it was, planted his, his Rutherford vineyard in the 1880s. Yeah. Um, so started this, um, started Inglenook, started, um, producing wines then obviously you know the the great tragedy that America did to itself prohibition um, the the they sold just the fruit as table grapes the winery was wasn't operating during prohibition um, but then Nebom's grand nephew John Daniels jr Robin Lale's dad and we love Robin Lale's wines also um, Took this winery over and and transformed it. And in 1941, the the 1941 Inglenook, um, what they now call the Rubicon, but just it was the Inglenook Cab, was a perfect hundred score from Wine Spectator. They did a kind of retrospective, and that 1941 earned a perfect score. And so for a, a wine in Napa Valley to to kind of achieve that kind of reputation for such a in, in a in a time when a lot of people weren't making wine in Napa is is pretty extraordinary. So let's take a, a couple minutes and then when we come back, I would love to kind of tell you a little bit more about this wine that I love and and probably kind of one of my hallmark wines that that made me really want to learn more about wine and, and be, eventually become a writer. Let's do that. We'll be back on a perfect pairing. And welcome back, everyone, to Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. Uh, before we left for the break, we're talking about Inglenook, Haley, and, and, and a wine that has meaning for you. Yes. And, and as I was just saying, you know, this 1941 scored a perfect 100-point rating from a retrospective that Wine Spectator did. So John Daniel Jr. really transformed uh, how this winery, the reputation for it, um, then obviously, you know, time and hardship took its toll. Um, sadly, eventually, he, um, John Daniels Jr. passed away. Um, several different owners came in. And luckily, in 1975, Francis Ford Coppola purchased the winery with the goal to restore it to, to what the Nebaum estate and the Inglenook estate had been. He couldn't use the name Inglenook anymore, so renamed it Nebaum Coppola. And in 1978, started producing Rubicon, which was the flagship wine from the best estate-grown fruit, including these historic Gustav Niebaum Cabernet Sauvignon grapes that were originally planted in the 1880s. So, um, fast forward about 20-so years, and I am, I'm living in Dallas, and I have a chance to, to first try um, the night I believe it was a '96 um, Nibon Coppola Rubicon, 
And I, I just fell in love. It was the most perfect combination of, of intensity with earthiness and these great forest floor kind of notes. But there's also such a, an inherent layer of like, of, of floral, like wildflowers and violets and great, um, ripe cherry flavors that, that, kind of always accentuate the, the true flavor of what this Inglenook estate is. And and wonderfully, in 2011, um, the Coppola's actually acquired the iconic Inglenook trademark. And so they, they announced the estate will once again be known as the Inglenook estate, which is, is pretty incredible. They brought in, um, I'm going to totally... I mess up this poor man's name, and I apologize in advance, Philippe, but Philippe Basquals, I believe, um, it was with Chateau Margaux, was brought in in 2011 also to become the general manager. And so these wines now definitely have kind of this Bordeaux touch. But there's also such a nice, delicate um, elegance to it that I just think that they're, 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 they're such beautiful wines, and, and they always kind of deliver and and you again with that whole rutherford dust you get that earthiness mm. in each one of the wines they're beautiful beautiful wines well i remember in the early days of our relationship that that bottle meant a lot to you absolutely we we drank a bottle of rubicon our, on our one french laundry um dining yes, experience we did. that's the bottle that we took that that we actually i had bought 10 years before and we Carted off to Napa Valley and and took it in. And I think our I think the cork fee at at, at French Laundry was about a hundred bucks, which around ninety or hundred. Yes. Which was so you have to take a bottle that's better that's, be pretty that's good. That's good, and and it just have a, such a special bottle. And I I it was have worth such it. it is. It was beautiful, especially because it we had aged it ten years. It probably could have gone an easy ten more years, but um, yeah, and those bottles have become very expensive too. Yes, yes, yeah. and they're just and they're special and they have a story, and that's I think why I love wine so much. So explain, having you just explain the nuances of that wine, um, here's my memory of that. We're eating at French Laundry. I take my first sip. I'm tasting dust on the back end. I couldn't quite <laughs> articulate what that was. Yeah. And I thought it was as smooth as silk. Yeah. Because that's exactly what you want it to yeah. be. Yeah. There was and no the, bite to it. No, the tannins had softened so beautifully. Softened so well. Mm-hmm. <sighs> great wine that's a, that's a great bottle of wine. it's great wine yeah, okay love that. let right. me ask you okay i'm thinking of a few a few questions to to ask you about both of these films that we saw this weekend first off i think um i've heard this rumor and i think i heard it from you so you can tell me who you okay. the rumor from. but jeff bridges in order for him to read a script Supposedly, he he has to receive like a million dollar payment or something like that. I don't know how it works. I don't know anybody that would pay that. But here's the deal: that I spent some time with the. I've interviewed Bridges over the years. I've never asked him that question. But the director of Crazy Heart spent two years just trying to get him to read the screenplay. But it was such a small little independent film, and they didn't want to pay the million dollars. And Bridges. Because that keeps all the riffraff away. I can kind of appreciate it because then you kind of you you know if you're going to get a script, then it's going to be a good script. Well, what little independent filmmaker has a million dollars sitting around to just get Jeff Bridges to read it? Yeah, yeah. By the way, that's a good payday just to read a script (laughs) for two or three hours. I need that job. I need that job, and and so you know they couldn't pay it, and they didn't want it. And his agent kept saying, "Jeff, just read this. It's great." But it took two years. He finally read it, made the film, made it for very little money. 
Won so an Academy great. Award for yeah. Best Actor. So, yeah, I, I've never seen that in print. I've only heard it from the director <laughs> who told me firsthand at the Fort Worth Film Festival. Nice. Yeah, and, I, you know, it, it's a cool story. But, you know, I think of Jeff Bridges. I think of The Big Lebowski. Yeah. I think of, remember, he was in Jagged Edge. Oh, my gosh, which is one of the best, yes. like, thrillers. They don't make good thrillers he anymore. He was in Jagged Edge. Love they, Jagged Edge. They don't. And he he was in The Last Picture Show, yeah. the film, I think, in 1971 that put him on the map, made him famous. Yeah. Uh, Oscar nomination. He was a kid. A Peter Bogdanovich film. I mean, that's one of the great Texas films of all time. But Jeff Bridges is in so Starman. Did you ever see Starman? I think so. yeah. Sci-fi film where he's a guy from outer space. He's got his shirt off and he's making things levitate. <laughs> and he was Oscar nominated for that. The fabulous Baker Boys, which is great. With Michelle his Pfeiffer and his brother yeah. Bo Bridges. Yeah, and he started doing television with his dad. But Je- Jeff stays out of the mainstream. Um, he was also the president of the United States. Oh, and and in that in the film, contender in it's the contender so with Joan, Joan Allen, Allen as the first female vice president. Yes, he's great in that film. It's Sa- great. He eats all the time. He he wants a shark steak sandwich. He wants a sandwich. <laughs> he's a president with a sandwich thing going on. <laughs> he did. Yeah, just I, I just I think it, he, he's an odd bird. But when you get in a room with him, he also has a band now because Crazy Heart turned him onto music more and more and more. Oh, he's always wow. played guitar. But uh, every time he every time he shows up in Texas somewhere, he's always sitting in with a band for two or three songs. That's great. And doing that. But he has this weird speech pattern that unless it's the right character, it just drives me nuts. And I think about two years ago, he was in some big sci-fi film that nobody saw where he's got hair down to his waist and he's walking around you know, trying to save the universe and it didn't work at all. But it's Crazy Heart and it's the Big Lebowski. He's the dude, man. I had a Big Lebowski hat for years. <laughs> and, and lost, I lost it. Oh, I don't, I don't know where it is. It said the dude abides on the back of it, and I wish I still had it. That's great. So yeah, it's, that's great. Yeah, yeah, you know, he's he's kind of a bigger a bigger than life kind of guy. I like that. So so, so we were talking about Ben Hur earlier, yeah. and you brought up Charlton Heston, and you know, I had a, a Charlton Heston encounter at one point. You did. I did. Early on in my my TV career back in the day, um, worked on a little show um, on our CBS affiliate here in Dallas called Positively Texas, and Charlton Heston was our very first guest. He came in the studio he with you guys. In the studio, we had a a big old director's chair, and he yeah we he was in studio. Crazy Brenda and Jody did a. a 15-minute interview with him, and and he was so gracious and so amazing mm-hmm. and lovely and kind of like, oh, my God, Charlton Heston's here on our little show. I yes. Think, I think we might our, – our ratings might beat Animaniacs that day, which was all we wanted to do. <laughs> Did you show that shot of him holding up his rifle with the NRA <laughs> saying, from my dead cold hands? <laughs> so I interviewed him a bunch. Oh, that's a great experience. Yeah. Because you're all old starstruck. Well, and I you know, I was 20-something. It was incredible. Yeah. yeah. And he is bigger than life. And those older actors are all gracious. They stand up when you walk into the room. They shake your hand. They listen. They're genuinely involved. They don't wear sunglasses. They're not hipsters. They aren't hanging out in the green room. They're actually talking to people. They don't talk in slang. They answer your question. They look you in the eye. Uh, So I'm doing an interview with him once. And we ended up talking about um, acting and what acting really meant to him internally. And he said, Gary, I'll never forget this. When you're playing El Cid, El Cid's one of the great epics that he made. And he was El Cid. 
when you ride on a horse into a village and there's 3,000 extras chanting, El Cid, El Cid, you don't have to act. You're El Cid. That's so great. You don't have to think about what you're doing. Just ride that horse, be El Cid. And I thought, that just makes total sense. It makes total sense. I've, he he and he did all those old films. Well, and these he are, said lines nobody could get away with. Exactly. Well, and they they are these epics, and we don't really yeah. have epics anymore. No, and we so, went real. And so, but but you you see these characters, and they are they're these bigger than life, where where he especially I think truly became who he was portraying. He he completely embodied each one of those people. And so the, it was Charlton Heston. I, I, you, you know that is Ben-Hur. And right. go win the chariot race. Yeah, you know that's him. And also, uh, there's not an actor today that could do that. Russell Crowe approached it in Gladiator. Mm-hmm. But they say lines that a normal person can't say or get away with. They'll say, like if I tried to say... One of those lines, you know, <laughs> Come give, on, Gary, me, <laughs> give me back my sword. No, I, I sound like a, I sound like an accountant trying to say, give me back my sword, but Charlton Heston can say it. I believe him. He, because he was one of those guys. Hey, this is really fun. Talking about biblical wines and talking about wines that mean so much to you and and Ben-Hur and Hell or High Water, just that we can say Ben-Hur and Hell and High Water in the, the, in same, the same sentence, sentence makes sense. <laughs> uh, next week, when we come back on Wine and Film, next week an R-rated animated film about food, and it's called Sausage Party. It made $35 million <laughs> over the week, and a popular documentary about a shamed New York politician called Wiener. So that's right, Sausage Party and Wiener together on next week's podcast. Oh, God, we can't wait. Um, For more on any of the wines or films we've talked about today, please check out our Perfect Pairing blog on our website, cogillconsulting.com, and be sure to follow Gary on Twitter at Gary Cogill. And see what we're drinking now. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Dallas Uncorked. And with that, I'm Gary Cogill. And as usual, I'm looking for the next great film. And I'm Haley Hamilton Cogill, always in search of a great glass of wine. Join us next time on... Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing.